Welcome back to A Weirdest Thing Podcast. I'm your host, Scotty Mowder, and I'm really excited this week to have our guest on. This one's for the horror fans and also for the history fans. So this is, uh, today we're going to have Sarah Tantlinger on. She is the author of the Bram Stoker award-winning The Devil's Dreamland, poetry inspired by H.H. Holmes, and the Stoker-nominated works To Be Devoured, Cradle Land of Parasites, and the anthology Not All Monsters. Her next anthology, Chromophobia, will be released on August 1st uh, through Strange House Books. So thank you. Uh, welcome and thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, so the way this came about, uh, as everyone knows, I attended StokerCon a couple months ago and I went to a reading. And I had read some of your work before, but I hadn't actually read your poetry. And you were reading from The Devil's Dreamland. And I was just kind of blown away by the concept and the work itself. So... Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> and I thought immediately I was listening to you read and I was like, I had to get you on the podcast. So. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> um, but before we get there, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, where you, you're from and kind of your journey as a writer. Sure. So I live about like an hour outside of Pittsburgh and that's where we're having StokerCon next year. So if you're listening, come to Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. I really started writing seriously in college and then I ended up going for my master's in writing too. And that was really where I kind of met all my, my people that wanted to write horror too. And I met all these amazing people that I talk to all the time now, which was really helpful to have another group of horror writers like motivate you and push you to write. Right. Yeah. And I started with poetry and then I released a novella and edited some anthologies. So now just doing a little bit of everything here and there. So one thing I, read a couple uh, earlier interviews with you and you said that you were kind of drawn to horror early on and I'm always interested in this because this is something for the for whatever reason I missed completely but so many people seem to have been their introduction to horror was R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike um mm -hmm. so talk about that a little bit like how old were you and kind of what was it about even that early being drawn to this kind of subject matter yeah so I remember middle school is probably when I started reading R.L. Stein and I, I don't know why <laughs> I guess just that <laughs> that inclination towards darkness but um, our middle school library had all those R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike books so I just worked my way through those and then my sister is eight years older than me so when I was reading R.L. Stein she was already reading Stephen King so mm -hmm. she was building her Stephen King collection so yeah um, it was a nice kind of bridge for me to get into the gateway of R.L. Stein. And then she had all those Stephen King books ready for me when I wanted to, you know, read some more advanced things. So, yeah, yeah I, was... I, I was just gonna say it was interesting for me because I went from reading fantasy, like I was reading a lot of Dungeons and Dragons type stuff, you know, Dragonlands, things like that. And then when I switched to my focus on horror, which is about the same time middle school, I went immediately to Stephen King. Yeah. Um, so somehow I missed the whole R.L. Stein and Christopher <laughs> Pike thing, <laughs> but that funny. seems like that was really seminal for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. There's like a whole group of people out there that just started with R.L. Stein and Pike, which is, um, it's really funny. Yeah. 
And then fantasy too. I mean, fantasy has a lot of dark stuff in it. So I feel Mm -hmm. like it goes very well with horror. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think it was? You know, this is something people ask me all the time. It's, it's that typical question that I think all horror writers kind of hate a little bit is like, why do you write the type of stuff you write? You know, kind of thing. But what do you think it was that drew you to the dark macabre side of things earlier on? Yeah, I feel like I started with like really angsty middle school poetry, you know, Mm. complete garbage. (laughs) (laughs) It was a starting point. And then definitely we read Edgar Allan Poe in middle school too. So that was very Mm. formative. And then I went through like a lot of grief when I was young. My dad died when I was Mm. very young. So getting into using grief as a kind of catharsis definitely was a huge push for me to write about just kind of this darker stuff and figuring out how to deal with grief that was probably one of the biggest Mm, things that pushed me towards horror yeah okay that that definitely makes sense yeah um and what about poetry I read somewhere that poetry was really like your first love like that's what really brought you into writing what was it what was it about poetry that grabbed you oh definitely just Poe in general, I mean, that mm-hmm. whole macabre, sad man of Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> and then I'd say after Poe, maybe like a little less horror cliche. When I was in college, I just became completely obsessed with William Blake. I mm. wanted to read everything that William Blake had done. I mean, he created like this whole mythology around his poetry, which is amazing. And no one else has really done something like that, where they were carving their own images to match the poetry and then yeah. creating the whole mythology, like, and then all the ties of William Blake with Hannibal and Red Dragon. Yeah. <laughs> a lot right. of fun too. Yeah. Yeah. Is, it, is there something about the, the use of language in poetry? Cause you know, I'm a horror writer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was in college, I, I dabbled in poetry a little bit and I, I really, I love poetry, but I really struggled with that type of writing. What was it for you that you just keyed into with, with, with that mode of expression? I think poetry is just a really good way to tighten your language skills. Mm-hmm. Like it teaches you that you have to create an image and all these senses very quickly in this little stanza. So it helps you become a better writer. And I think I just was initially really drawn to how vivid those images could be in a poem that's only a couple pages or maybe an epic poem <laughs> yeah. that we studied in college. They're always like really long. I'm like, oh, I don't want to write that, but I like these little gruesome bits and pieces that you can kind of get from a poem. And it's something that you can sit down and complete in a day or two. Mm-hmm. And I like that kind of quick satisfaction of completing something. So mm-hmm. that too, but yeah, the language is a huge part of it. I mean, you can really make something very rich. You can make something very vague and play into that fear of the unknown, especially with horror poetry. So it's it's pretty endless with your options of what you want to try to write. Yeah, I, I feel like it's interesting what you're saying about that ability to kind of quickly get it like a gruesome image. Mm-hmm. Um, because from I, I feel like from the work of yours that I've read, that is something that really jumps out at me is your ability to go from kind of a lyrical description into something really disturbing very quickly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and very, ev- so actually that, that's kind of a perfect segue. I want to read just, let me see if I can find it. Um, you have a short story. It's called, uh, as 
as humans burn beneath us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's from an anthology called Field Notes from a Nightmare, an anthology of ecological horror, edited by Alex Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about that story? Because I found that a really interesting, unexpected approach. Yeah, so that story, like you said, it's from ecological horror standpoints, and I ended up telling it from the point of view of clouds as they're kind of watching humanity's final Mm -hmm. days and all the clouds are disappearing. And it started out as a story that was from the point of view of a person. And there's just something that wasn't clicking for me. And I'm like, Mm. I just don't want to do this. So then I just started playing around with that point of view and it clicked completely. And away we went with (laughs) this point of view of the clouds. But I I think a lot of that comes from poetry because you can play around with point of view so well in poetry. So that definitely influenced that story in particular. Right. I I found, I mean, I guess the way you would describe it would be like uh, clouds narrating the apocalypse in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's a good tagline. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Basically like and, and I, I love the ambiguity of are the clouds causing the apocalypse out of revenge for what we've done to the planet? Are they sort of observing uh, dispassionately? And then, of course, you have another cloud which pops up, which is the, it's never explicitly stated, but I think it's pretty clear, like a nuclear cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That, that is, even to the clouds that are narrating the story, this other cloud is very much an other. It's like a uh, very much this unknowable force yeah. and I want to read just just back to the idea of like your your use of language to move us into like a disturbing description so this is from that story and if you don't mind I'm just going to read one paragraph sure it says we leave our remnants gather far away from the false cloud of the desert the only cloud there now a horrid plume consisting of ammonia scented toxic waste before it mingles with odors of flesh melting off faces Finger bones char to glowing embers. Clothes disintegrate. The girl in the desert exists no more. Her skin reduced to sticky stretches of bubblegum meat, connecting her upper body to the clay wall of her family's home. Miraculously, the wall stands. The girl's remains dangle from it, slumped forward, melted to its surface. Just that image. I read this story... When, when did the anthology come out? I'm trying to remember. Um, just last year, like fall yeah, was, last year. Yeah. I was thinking it was within the last couple of years. And I think I read it. Uh, so I must have read it last year. That description has stuck with me ever since I read that story. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the girl in the desert exists no more. Her skin reduced to sticky stretches of bubblegum meat, connecting her upper body to the clay wall of her family's home. Just that. That image, it's so beautiful and so disturbing. And one thing I, I feel like you do that I, I can't quite figure out how you do it <laughs> is something will be emotional, will be, there'll also be a bit of a clinical detachment. It'll be beautiful and horrible at the same time. And I think, you know, as you're talking about, it really seems like it's that poetic training, I guess, that gives you the ability to do that. Yeah, I think that plays into it a lot. And I think it's also just like how much I love playing with those contrasting images of, Mm -hmm. I think, like you said, you can put the emotion into something beautiful and you can make it really, you know, paint that image really nicely and idyllically. And then 
with horror, there is sometimes that clinical detachment where you're putting yourself in a horrible situation, but you're safe because you're writing mm-hmm. it. You're not actually in it. So right. just combining those two things of beauty and horror and disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's what people always say about Cronenberg's films. And I definitely <laughs> get that sense <laughs> where, where it's the beauty in the horrific, but with just mm-hmm. like a little bit of distance. I find that really fascinating. Right. And like he plays around with the humanity aspect so much mm-hmm. too, which I think is such a great thing to do with horror. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I, I feel like, in terms of horror subgenres, are there any that you particularly subscribe to, or do you kind of feel like you try to bounce around? I try to bounce around, but I often come back to historical because there's just, I love the research aspects and mm-hmm. that's a lot of fun for me. And then I've been getting more and more into eco horror. I definitely would love to do an eco horror poetry collection someday. That's been on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, just a lot to play around with there, but I, I do try to read everything so I can be an, a better informed writer too, if I want to play yeah. around with those subgenres. Yeah. I, I really feel like, I don't know if you want to like call it a subgenre, but one thing that I, I've seen as kind of like a recurring theme, and I think it definitely comes up in the devil's dreamland and it definitely comes up in to be devoured is concerns about like bodily integrity like uh the form of a human body the sort of horrific beauty of a dead body um i think let's talk just a little bit before we get into the devil's dreamland i'd like to talk just a little bit about to be devoured because i actually read that really recently i read that probably a month ago knowing i was going to have you on here and i was really kind of blown away by it thank you 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 want to kind of describe it for us a little bit? Sure. So <laughs> To Be Devoured is my, my debut novella. It came out about three years ago. It's actually going out of print in like 10 days. Oh, but really? Yeah, it will be oh. back someday, but probably not for a year or so. So people but it's get okay. on it. <laughs> yeah, so get on it, but it's okay. I wanted to take my rights back for this one, but it will be back someday. Ah, okay. But yeah, <laughs> it's about a woman who becomes obsessed with vultures and carrion and she kind of convinces herself that there's a power that the vultures hold that she's desperate to understand. Um, her girlfriend Luna tries to rein her in and keep her away from this stuff, but it ends up not going so well for anybody. <laughs> so <Yeah>. basically vultures, <laughs> carrion, obsession, Luna moths, then yeah. those things ring your bell, then pick that one up. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely got, you know, themes of cannibalism, of mm-hmm. consuming of meat, um, yeah. and how that sort of translates into this. I mean, I guess you would call it a love story, but it's a very disturbing. <laughs> yeah, it has a little bit of that horror romance, as I like to call it, because mm-hmm. I do like to combine those aspects of horror and romance. And um, I think you were talking about body horror earlier, too, and that's definitely a big theme that I like to play around with. And that's a that's a big one to be devoured, for yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> Even the, you know, the opening motif of... Um, you know, you start with Andy. Andy's your main character, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. She's making a gift for Luna, her girlfriend. And her idea is to take these Luna moths, these actual dead moths, mm-hmm. and sew their wings into, like, what was it? I'm trying to remember. Was it a like a, a bigger wing that could fit a human? Oh, that yeah, that's right, right. Oh, yeah. And again, it's that idea of 
you know, taking death and decay and the transformation into something beautiful, but or at least beautiful to Andy, even <laughs> to <though> Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Luna, maybe less so. Mm-hmm. But the, yeah, that again, back to just like that Cronenberg. I have not seen Crimes of the Future yet. Um, Me neither. It's high on my to do list. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <Yeah. laughs> But I know that, you know, that's something that people talk about with his work all the time is that kind of that transformation of decay and death into something else and something that Mm -hmm. has its own kind of dark beauty to it. And I really felt like that just just the use of the Luna Moths at the beginning and the wings just really I felt like set the table for that and to be devoured. Thank you. I I grew up in the woods. And so on my mom's garage, she would get those Luna moss and they would just, I don't know why they liked the brick so much, but they would just be on the brick of the garage all the time. And then a rainstorm would come and their wings Mm -hmm. would just be like all over the driveway. And it was always so (laughs) horrifying. (laughs) That that definitely inspired some of those ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting when you read it because I'm I'm reading it, you know, you're reading it from Andy's perspective. So you're really seeing the beauty that she sees in this thing she's creating. But again, you have just enough clinical distance where we can kind of predict what Luna, her girlfriend's response is going to be, which is mm-hmm. not going to be. <laughs> <laughs> not great. <laughs> <laughs> not great. <laughs> what was it about the vultures in that? Because I, you know, I grew up in New Mexico and I think of, you know, we have a lot of vultures out here. It's the, you know, the go out into the desert. You're always seeing vultures yeah. uh, swooping around. What is it about them that kind of grabbed your interest? So those were another thing that we always had where I grew up, um, the turkey vultures. And they, I just thought they were interesting. Like sometimes we lived near, near my grandpa who had a bunch of cows. And sometimes you could tell when there was a dead cow because here come the vultures mm-hmm. and they are just swoop and make those circles and it's just such an interesting image when you're out there in the middle of the woods and there's not really other people around and you just see these carrion birds so as a horror writer your mind starts going hmm what could I do with that kind of image Mm. and I also think there's something like they're freaky looking so they get this terrible terrible reputation but they're actually really good for the environment and for ecosystems So yeah, just playing around with those kind of things too, of what, what freaks us out, even though it's not actually an evil thing, but mm-hmm. they kind of get portrayed that way too. And it is interesting because we're seeing all this from Andy's perspective. So she's an interesting window into, I guess, an ability to look at these freaky things differently because she yeah. doesn't see, you know, when we see a vulture or a dead moth or something, there's something disturbing and, and off-putting and Mm-hmm. upsetting about it she immediately sort of sees the beauty in these things yeah and I think that that was an interesting you know as all horror fans we've all read stories about cannibalism and death and decay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's that's nothing new mm-hmm. but the almost childlike wonder she has for this process was something I don't think I've ever read before like that felt very new to me well thank you I appreciate that perspective for sure yeah um yeah it's definitely it's uh when did to be devoured come out 2019 ish okay yeah yeah because like i said i just read it It, it's in my top books of the year for sure oh thank you (laughs) appreciate it and yeah i'm not sure if the podcast will come out before it goes out of print you said in about 10 days yeah um i'll try and get it out next week so people have a couple days to uh to grab a copy 
Um, well, thanks, and no worries. It's it's been a quick process. Yeah. You're just trying. You're just trying to get the rights back. To yeah, I decided to take the rights back um, for many many reasons, but mm. I'm excited to give it a little new life, some cleaning up, and then hopefully next year yeah. it'll be back, or at least sometime soon. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's move into the Devil's Dreamland. So before we get into it, I was wondering if you could read the opening poem before we even get into describing what the book is. So the opening poem is uh, Metamorphosis, and I think it's just a great, it just sets the table so, so brilliantly. Thank you. And sure, I would be happy to read this one. All right. So I guess just for a brief context, The Devil's Dreamland is about H.H. Holmes, serial mm. killer in America. So this is the opening poem to The Devil's Dreamland. Metamorphosis. I am Herman Webster Mudgett. What's real doesn't sound real, does it? Raised by a mother's constant prayer, hell bound on that first metallic tang of religion, ingrained deep into my flesh by a father's frequent use of a rod, constant and unsparing, but pity me not, for this is how I learned love and violence swelter together into one inflamed desire. I am Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, better now, better, A doctor is in, far away from a young wife and son, but I will take other wives and mistresses, one who will bear another child spreading the devil in my DNA onward. Because parasitical intents are not created for containment. I discover my enlightened self in Chicago. Buildings clad in snowy stucco, lamplights casting angelic glows onto streets. I can see why they call this the white city. My footsteps fall like a sooty black rain, dark as a plague, promising practiced surgical hands to unfold the city's ribs, pluck out its heart, squeeze meaty thumps of dying beats over everything in a rhythm of blood songs. I am H.H. Holmes, do you know me yet? Standing on the precipice of life, my demon inside me, but I name him friend. Later, he names my building the murder castle, with its trapped doors, secret passages, never fully finished in its construction. But the walls are always listening, as I remove suchers of skin from those in my employment. I am your American serial killer wrapped up in 19th century shreds of screaming women, trapped behind soundproof walls where ribbon-soaked memories drip down into soil. Later, within scrawled prison memoirs, I will articulate contradictions, confess to murders of those still living, as people falsify accounts of things untrue, because you will never know what it is like to be born with the evil one inside you. Here in prison, my face grows gaunt, my eyes grim. I am someone you never truly know. I am the worst kind of thing you could ever find as you crawl your way across a hotel floor, fall down a sliding trap door into a room filled with acid bottles, a stretching rack, cleaned up skeletons forever locked in a purgatory grin. I am your timeless devil. You will never know me, yet I am everywhere. Great, thank you. 
So we'll talk here about H.H. Holmes himself here in a moment, but I want to talk about this poem first. I think most of the people who listen to this podcast probably know who H.H. Holmes is. What I love that you do here, (laughs) what I love that you do here is you you take us from, you know, the prosaic, um, even his name, which is like the most prosaic name you can imagine, Herman Webster Mudgett, you know, (laughs) into this kind of iconic, almost, almost religious view you know the the repetition of the i am mm-hmm. you know it definitely makes me think of the biblical you know i am what i am or, yeah. or what is it yeah i know what you're talking I am what about I am, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am as i am so whatever it is <laughs> <laughs> um you know your last stanza i am your timeless devil you know you start with i am herman Webster or mudget what's real doesn't sound real does it but then you get to i am your timeless devil it's an interesting way to take this real life serial killer, you know, he was a human being like the rest of us, but really explore the legend of him. You know, yeah. there's, there's something about the process of turning these people into legends that uh, they become larger than life and they do become these almost like supernatural uh, yes. entities in our mind. Yeah. So. And I think that's particularly true of H.H. H. Holmes because he just left behind such a mess of information that no one was really ever (laughs) able to figure it out and what was real and what happened. So he's just a great example of how we can do that with horror, especially, and just, you know, try not to like glorify it, but also not shy away from the things that he did. So, Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and he just started out with that. It's kind of a funny name with with his real name, Mudget. And then, um, he took on a lot of different pseudonyms throughout his travels, but obviously H.H. H. Holmes was, was the one. That's the one that stuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so tell us just a little bit. I mean, I think, like I said, I think most people know the broad strokes of who he was, but mm-hmm. but tell us just a little bit about him. And then what was it about him that made you want to write about him? Yeah. So I think some of the things that maybe aren't as focused on in a lot of the media around Holmes is that he wasn't really someone who's thought of as having a particularly troubled childhood a lot Mm -hmm. of that seems to become more like you know fantasized throughout so it seemed like he was actually fairly normal in terms of his childhood which is a little unusual serial killers um and then he went on to actually finish school and become a doctor which is another unusual trait for a serial killer to actually complete that education and then just his journey of the weird weird shit that he did from working <laughs> as an apprentice to become someone who learned how to strip skin from skeletons basically an articulator mm-hmm. and just other weird little stories that people had along the way like um his landlady that he lived with once who found a dead baby under his bed that story is usually one that's proven true but again it's all big question mark with Holmes but yeah I was just definitely interested in this weird, the weird things that he did. And especially because he didn't seem to kill for the sake of killing. A lot of it was more like money and financial motivators Mm -hmm. as opposed to bloodlust. So that was Mm -hmm. kind of interesting to research as well. Yeah. And, and, and for anyone who isn't aware of him, so he was, I just looked up a couple, oops, and I lost it. Um, Give me just a second. Sure. I had... I had it open on my <laughs> <laughs> the computer said um, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I believe uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was born in 1861, I think in New Hampshire. Yeah. Somewhere um, around then. 
And then, you know, like you said, he, he, he appeared to have a pretty normal childhood. Like you said, he went to medical school, but even medical school, he was like stealing bodies and doing these weird insurance. Yeah, there's a lot of stories of him, like grave robbing, which was pretty common at that time. They would often Mm -hmm. use those skeletons to sell to colleges. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the stories I want to, I want to tell on the podcast at some point, I've been wanting to do Burke and Hare in uh, Scotland, the the innkeepers that were doing very similar to H.H. Holmes. They were earlier, I think, but they were, you know, they're innkeepers murdering people in the inn, selling the bodies to the medical school. And they also started with grave robbing. It's an interesting. Yeah, that would be a good episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's interesting when you think about, we have our idea of what medical school is now, but when Mm -hmm. you get back in the past, it wasn't that far from like the Middle Ages, even a hundred years ago, it was... Yeah. Uh, still pretty new. <laughs> right. Especially with how they procured their um, studies or specimens. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> definitely. But yeah, but even, you know, he, like you said, he, he had all the template for being like a quote unquote normal person. But then mm-hmm. early on, you start seeing him veering into these wild schemes. And, uh, and of course, it just escalated and escalated into the famous. And I know that a lot of people have called into question the the veracity of some of the stories from the time. But, you know, there's mm-hmm. the famous murder castle in mm-hmm. Chicago with all the yeah. trap doors and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's always interesting to see people's like own drawings and sketches. Mm-hmm. I have I actually have a puzzle of the murder castle. too. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. It's, it's a really detailed puzzle. It's pretty cool. Oh, um, I want to. I want to find that. <laughs> I think That's the artist's awesome. name is Holly Carden or something like that. I'll we'll we'll look that, that one up. But we'll she is, yeah, she has a Dracula puzzle and a Poe puzzle too. And they're just like extremely detailed. There's like little dismembered people on the puzzle pieces. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, there is something about, I think what I find so disturbing about H.H. Holmes, and I think you really captured it in the book. I want to get back to the book here in a second, mm-hmm. but is the fact that he was a quote, normal person, um, that you can't point to a thing and say, there's the reason, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I'm teaching horror to my students, like I teach writing. And oh. when I'm talking about horror, I, I always like my kind of one sentence description of what horror is, as I say, as I always say, it's the, the irrational or in unknowable kind of invading what should be a rational space. Yeah. And there's something about the psychopath that is like, in terms of human, the human mind, that is the most unknowable thing for anyone who's not a psychopath, because we can sort of try to imagine what it's like to feel no empathy. But unless you're someone who can't feel empathy, you'll never really know what that's like. Right. Like you know, it's to just be such in that a, person's head. <laughs> it's scary. It's legitimately scary. So I think that's definitely a big draw to us as writers and mm-hmm. teachers too. <laughs> yeah. Trying to figure out who in this classroom has no empathy. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, what is it they say that like 10% of people is a psychopath? Oh, Which I'm not is, sure, but that's scary too. <laughs> yeah, that's like one out. Of, I'm not sure if that's like a real quote, but I've or a real statistic, but I've seen that before. Okay. Um, and that's you know one out of every ten people is a psychopath. That's a scary thought. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's I think there's something about H.H. Holmes. That it's part of what makes it so fascinated in Ted Bundy. Mm, right. Is it's like you know you can look at a lot of people who have done horrible things, and you can trace back. You can find the seeds. You even looking at like Adolf Hitler, if you if you look at 
his early life and kind of the development of his life and his experiences in World War One. You can imagine how he ended up where he ended up. Right. With someone that- like Bundy or H.H. H. Holmes, it's like where there's no way to trace back mm-hmm. where that comes from. I thought what you did in The Devil's Dreamland is and, and in a way you do it in uh, To Be Devoured too, although it's a very different experience. Yeah. Is putting us in the mindset. I'm not sure I would call Andy in To Be Devoured a psychopath. No, I never thought of her that way myself. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> she clearly cares about people, but there's something about her specific compulsions and her delusions and i don't want to spoil anything that i think gets in her way of being able to feel empathy yeah and she has a very traumatic past that's revealed in the book too that is true holmes was just (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you know with to be devoured even though yeah like i said i wouldn't call her a psychopath and you definitely you're right there's the traumatic past you do a great job of of putting us in a mindset where we can understand a mentality or we can at least begin to understand a mentality that is totally alien to us. And I feel like with The Devil's Dreamland, um, you're kind of able to do that with H.H. H. Holmes in a way that was. I guess my first question is why poetry? Why, why a book of poems? So when I was researching Holmes and watching documentaries, there's so many books out there about him, but there's no poetry collections. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. I write poetry. so yeah. And I thought it would be something different and there's not really a lot of women that write about homes either so mm, I definitely wanted to yeah. explore that too and I liked how it came together as kind of like a narrative like we go through mm-hmm. his life with him so and I've, I've read some poetry collections like that but not very many where it is an arc of a person's life so right um it was just a lot of fun for me to put it together like that well it's interesting i think i think the fact that it is poetry it allows you a lot of freedom to shift viewpoint yes uh because like you one one of the poems is from the perspective of his mother some is from this more like omniscient narrator some is from uh tell us a little bit and i'm forgetting uh his last name is it patazel benjamin oh yeah benjamin peitzel i think Heitzel. I'm never sure how to pronounce these people's names. Right. <laughs> to give our best guess. But yeah, yeah, yeah. His his business partner. There's some from the point of view of his wives and his mistresses too, mm-hmm. um, which I really wanted to do to try to give them a voice to make them more than a victim. Um, right. Especially with his wives, because he didn't kill any of the wives, the mistresses, yes, but all three of his wives lived mm-hmm. to see the end, which until he was executed. That is true. Yeah. 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 That is true. I hadn't thought about that, but that is true. You know, usually guys like that, you do think they're most dangerous to the people closest to them. And he certainly was because he, mm-hmm. uh, he killed, essentially killed Benjamin Peitzel's entire family. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whole <laughs> like, family, pretty much. <laughs> yeah but you have a couple poems from his perspective and i thought that was really interesting because the shift in perspective to peitzel is like the voice is so different oh good um, and i'm glad that comes across because he peitzel probably wasn't like the brightest guy around right. but he was definitely like heavily influenced and manipulated so that was mm-hmm. a big part of his unfortunate ending <laughs> yeah 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 exactly and i think you see that you know in the in the I'm forgetting the name of the poem, but it's the one where it's him talking about his treatment for alcoholism. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And you do get a sense that he, you know, he was just a damaged person that H.H. H. Holmes was able to prey on. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, very, very easily too. So poor guy did yeah. not stand much of a chance. Really? <laughs> yeah, he really didn't. And you have, and you have a poem from the perspective of the uh, city of Chicago, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. Um, see if I can find it. It was, it was about the great Chicago fire, but yeah. kind of setting the stage for his arrival in the city and then uh i was wondering if you could read the poem it's the one that comes so so the one about chicago it's called the great chicago fire of 1871 and it is basically from the perspective of the city but then the next the next poem blood clot passenger i was wondering if you could read that one because i want to talk about kind of how you introduce the character of poems sure all right so i'll start with the fire one um yeah so i just thought it was interesting that like all this stuff was happening in the city around the same times mm-hmm. as Holmes. So I wanted to play around with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So here's the great Chicago fire of 1871 conflagration. I am named, but am I accident arson, the work of a vengeful God? I am soot and grit. The American dream turned to charcoal death. They built a city of tinder, kindling for oceanic fire, hissing across the river, consuming everything as if the sun dripped flames down in the middle of the night, smothering out Chicago's heart, leaving only a blackened husk. My citizens will spend so long recreating my scorched coffin into something habitable. They will bleed hearts of phoenixes into my soil, regrow me, make me rise, so I rise. So does death. He's only 10 when I am murdered, when I birth smoke and ash. They rebuild me and I become the great white city fit for a great white shark of a human being. Here, where my streets are sewers, where my people are rats, blood with money. That 10-year-old grows up, comes sniffing out that blood money like rich scarlet honey nectar for his surgical hands to wrap around, squeeze, lap it up, stain the white city with splattered carnage. I no longer need a doctor to repair damaged veins of restoration, but the train whistles a warning. It is too late. He is coming. He is here. I love the build to the train whistles warning. (laughs) thank you (laughs) like that actually gave me goosebumps when i read it uh you know it's it's obviously it's hh holmes arrival into the city and i said you know this is from the perspective of the city i guess hearing it read a lot i guess it's really from the perspective of the fire right i think it plays around with both what the Mm -hmm. the fire you know if you imagine it as sentient what it did to this place and then all that work to repair it and then after that it gets stained with this mess of mess of murder <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. um and would you mind reading the next poem sure uh, clot passenger all right blood clot passenger 1886 late summer early morning a man steps off a train 35 years old five foot eight blue eyes striking against miasmic city filth striking against his well-dressed body hearses roll by Ironclad wheels rattling, urging city rats to scamper past blue bottle flies, hovering over animal corpses littering over city streets like masses on an artery. A man walks through the city as summer rots, locomotive steam pluming upward, conjoining with polluted clouds, soot and smoke. 
thickening a blockage from the sun. 1886, late summer, early morning, a man steps off a train. The clot breaks free, travels through Chicago's body. This dark mustached swindler, this charmer who pied the snakes, swallowed them whole. Emits musical poison from his throat, walks past death without blinking. 35 years old, five foot eight, blue eyes, hungering over the sight of maggots, wondering how squirming larvae would look inside the body of the pretty woman he had sat next to on the train. That, again, uh, goosebumps at the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of him as a blood clot kind of kicked loose in the, I guess, the circulatory system of a city. And then, you know, building to that question at the end, you know, the side of maggots wondering how squirming larvae would look inside the body of the pretty woman. You know, this is something I struggle with as, as a horror writer. You know, when you're writing scenes of violence, particularly directed towards women, uh, you know, that comes with a lot of, what would the word be? <laughs> I guess it could, cultural it could come baggage, with, maybe? Some, some backlash, maybe some. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is it for you? What, what is that experience for you when you're writing? Because I want to I wanna talk a little bit about Emily here in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who, to me, in the book is just such a tragic figure and also in life. Mm-hmm. But what, what is it? What is that experience for you when you're writing about these violent? circumstances specifically with someone like Holmes who directed so much of his violence towards women right oh that's a great question I think it's kind of why women are a little obsessed or fascinated with true crime is Mm -hmm. because it's just kind of especially horror lovers there's just something ingrained in us to always be like careful and always watching at all times and just trying to be aware of our surroundings so it's kind of interesting to play around with it from this point of view of a serial killer. And I guess it's just kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid in a way, diving mm-hmm. straight into something. So, and it's it's always sad. Like it's that always made me sad when I researched all the women that probably right. did go missing around home. So I think in this case in particular, it's far enough in the past that there's some removal, some emotional removal from that. And I kill everybody in my book. So <laughs> equality, mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah. yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience. And I bet every woman would probably have a different <laughs> response to that. Well, it's interesting what you said about the being drawn to true crime. I've had this conversation with Amelia, who's my regular co-host on this, and we're both obsessed with true crime, but she has said almost the exact same thing. That oh, that's funny. Yeah. About what her, what draws her to true crime. It's not the prurient interest. It is the, she's even said it's almost like training yourself for like the dangers of the world like you're you're you know it's a way of like heightening her own awareness yeah it's it's very morbid but i can <laughs> i see that and yeah because sometimes there's just like you know like with um like with bundy like the way that you would mm-hmm. trick people into thinking that no oh, this is fine this is safe well, no <laughs> it's yeah. not if you're gonna be the target of your victim yeah yeah absolutely um, and that, that's a good segue into talking about Emmeline as a character. You have several poems kind of about her. Um, let's see if I can find them. Yeah, it's been a while since I looked through yeah. this book too. I'm like, which where? Well, and I meant, I meant to mark the pages, but I didn't want to like <laughs> mark up my book and like, you know, bend the pages down and I don't have enough bookmarks, but 
and this will be i think the last poem. i don't want to ask you to read the entire book for us. <laughs> um but i i was wondering if you could read there's two poems back to back there's on page 55 angel and then uh emmeline yeah all right so I guess a little context, Angel refers to when um, Peitzel, H.H. Holmes' business partner, mm-hmm. was returning back from the Keeley Institute, and that's where he was trying to get sober, trying to get better, trying to just <laughs> probably be more aware of his surroundings. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it didn't work out so well for Peitzel. Not, not so well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this one is Angel, and again, it's from Peitzel's perspective. Right. Doc, I saw a real-life angel there. Between the meetings, pills, punishments, young and blonde and fresh, beautiful mouth, beautiful words, comforting angel, lovelier even than Miss Julia, a true savior between the milky walls of confinement. Doc, her eyes, I saw truth in them, a real-life seraph. I think she might save us. I think she might save us all. And then the next one is called Emmeline. Mm -hmm. Peitzel was right about this angel. Golden hair, blazing eyes, pouting lips, eyelashes fluttering like butterfly wings. All it took to entice her here was a promise of adventure, double the pay of Keeley's madhouse, and a striking description of life in an energetic city. The angel came to Chicago came to my castle, smiled at my advances, cradled my gift of flowers, beamed at the expensive dinners, danced in the moonlight, rode side by side with me on bicycle tours, breathed in the crisp scenery. Flower flesh girl, a rare delicacy in a time where women are becoming hardened by work and business and education. Emmeline remained soft, supple, pliant to my hands around her waist, open to my lips covering her own. I don't think about Julia or Murda or Clara. I think about keeping her just a little longer. The lore of her grows undeniably strong within my pounding head. She is in love with me. My shadows cannot reach her for they are not exposed as shadows just yet. She swallows my lies like honey, believes I am the son of an English lord, that we will marry and honeymoon in Europe, perhaps even settle there. Oh, my dear Emmeline, these secrets we must keep. You shining crystal, you beam of light against the coal clouded skies. How I smile at you, how you melt against me. Your beautiful tongue, hungry for love. Your beautiful fate is almost here. Thank you. Sure. Um, so the, these two, these, and actually, and I'll probably, if you don't mind, uh, ask you to read the one. There's a short one that comes immediately after that, but we'll, we'll get to that one in a second. Sure. I think these three poems together might be my favorite yeah. in the book. Interesting. Um, and one thing, and, and it's interesting because they are the least horrific, technically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not, not as gory as some of not the other ones. <laughs> but it, what, what is interesting to me, and I wanted to get your perspective on this, is you have, you know, the first one, Angel, this is from Patizel's perspective, mm-hmm. or Peitzel. Peitzel's, yeah. Um, and then the second one, Emmeline, is from H.H. Holmes' perspective. Right. And they're both kind of love poems but 
not. I guess <laughs> in, for a little bit. <laughs> in different ways. <laughs> yeah. So for a little bit of context, do you want to tell us just a little bit who Emmeline was? Yeah. So she was someone that we think was real as far as we can tell. And there was this kind of infatuation that Peitzel had when he saw her at this institute, that she was kind, that she was helping him. Mm-hmm. And he made the mistake of telling H.H. H. Holmes about this young woman And Holmes, being who he was, was intrigued enough to, I believe he wrote to her and like, kind of like the poem says, convinced her to come work for him, promised double Mm. pay, which was huge, especially for something like, you know, young women were just kind of starting to work more at this time and become more independent and travel alone. So he hired her as a stenographer, I think. Yeah. 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 He he did that for a couple women where he would have them take notes, be secretaries, maybe Mm. work at the the counter with his little jewelry store that he kind of took over. So it was kind of easy to lure them there especially if they came from families that didn't have a lot of money so she came yeah <laughs> I don't think she was there very long but um yeah no, I didn't want to sound like it no but I, I liked the idea of kind of them being love poems from those two different perspectives of how Peitzel was infatuated and not really a hostile way but then obviously no. with Holmes it's the opposite yeah I mean there's definitely something about Peitzel where you just really feel like the guy was a dupe yeah yeah absolutely um, but what, what was interesting to me is you know from both of their you know they're both like I said kind of love poems mm-hmm. but neither of these men are really seeing her like Peitzel is you know he's talking about you know I saw a real life angel here you know and he describes her young beautiful blonde and Young and blonde and fresh, beautiful mouth, beautiful words. But he keeps putting her on this pedestal. You know, she's a comforting mm-hmm. angel, lovelier even than Miss Julia. Miss Julia was one of H.H. Um, H. Holmes' other mistresses, right? Yes, yes. Right. You know, a true savior. Doc, her eyes, I saw truth in them. A real seraph. You know, he's, he's not seeing the human being in her. Mm-hmm. As much as, like you said, it's not malicious. It's not malevolent. But he's still dehumanizing her. Right. It's like this glorified kind of perspective Mm -hmm. yeah and then of course h.h holmes what does he see what what was it do you think from your perspective in the poem what was it about her and peitzel's description of her that kind of brought his attention to her i think in general he was just a curious kind of person and you know if there was a pretty victim to be had then that was enough to make him curious and if there was any kind of money to be had or any kind of financial gain I'm not sure if Emmeline really had much to offer in that perspective but I think it was just that curiosity probably from how much Peitzel had talked this woman up so mm-hmm. Holmes being who he is was probably just curious enough to entice her there and then yeah. I think he very much just viewed her as kind of like he did with his other mistresses like they were all very pliable to him he could really manipulate mm-hmm. them and get what he wanted until they were no longer of use to him yeah i mean whereas peitzel is describing her as this angel you know we get these descriptions from Holmes where it's a uh you know flower fresh girl a rare delicacy at the time you know so he's immediately seeing her as something to be consumed mm-hmm. uh she remains soft and subtle pliant to my hands around her waist you know it's it's again it's it's looking past our humanity and he's he's noticing all these specific details about her you know mm-hmm. your beautiful tongue hungry for love but it's like it really is like he's seeing her as food like a delicacy 
Yeah. Yeah. And something that you can kind of apply like clay, like mold it into what you want it to be. And that was definitely, I think an interest of his was making people into what he wanted them to be. Right. Yeah. And and that's, what's so interesting. What I think you capture so well throughout the book is, you know, like you said at the beginning, it's hard to know with Holmes. There's so many contradictory stories about him. He contradicted himself. Like he he confessed (laughs) to killing all these people and then some of them were alive and right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Like wasn't, someone he confessed to killing they found alive up in Canada or something yeah he made in prison he made a list of like 27 people he confessed to killing and most Uh of them were found alive so it was very strange yeah so it's you know like you said you know it seems the motivation for a lot of it was financial Mm -hmm. but there was something else going on with him you know there was some compulsion or fascination with death you know it wasn't it wasn't just the financial thing he did have a he seemed to be enjoying what he was doing right yeah there was definitely like an interest in probably the Mm. women who were like revering him as this right god like savior man giving them money and trips and taking them to the fair and these things like that so i think there was definitely an aspect that he enjoyed in that regard and definitely the sense of control you know controlling Mm -hmm. Because I think even with Peitzel, you could say, you know, he, he controlled him to the point where he took everything from Peitzel, including yes. his family. Yes, know? absolutely. And so when you talk, when he's talking about Emily and a soft, supple plant to my hands, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it definitely shows that predatory nature, but yeah. you don't, you don't stop there, which is, I think what I love about this. Cause I think <laughs> rather than just keep her a victim you do give us a little bit from her. So the next poem, Endgame, I was wondering if you could read that one. Yeah. So Endgame is from Emmeline's perspective. And in this poem, she is writing to her sister. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is Endgame. Dear sister, I am to be married to a fine gentleman, someone with wealth and generosity, kindness and determination, the bluest eyes I have ever seen, a secret past, ambitious future. Yes, my dearest sister, I know such love seems quick as burning a paper to ash, but here in Chicago, I have met my endgame. Here in Chicago, I have met my fate. Yours, Emmeline. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, is that the only one that's from her perspective? I think so, because then the next one is the end of Emmeline. Yeah, yeah, we're back to Holmes there. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so... For me, it was so moving to, you know, we're seeing Holmes's just predatory view of her and then her view of him. Again, she's not seeing the real person. She's mm-hmm. she's seeing the facade that he's putting up. And yes. it's so it's heartbreaking. It really is. Yeah. And that happened over and over. These poor women, they would write to their families and mm-hmm. talk about how they're going on their honeymoon in Europe. And they, they were not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very much. And, you know, and even just the name Endgame and how she describes it. You know, she says, but here in Chicago, I've met my Endgame. Here in Chicago, I've met my fate. You know, she could be talking about her marriage. Like mm-hmm. her Endgame is like, I'm going to be married to this wonderful man. That's my yep. Endgame. But, you know, the double meaning of that is it's haunting. Yes. Yeah. And it plays off of poems talking about fate in the previous poem. So mm-hmm. it's fun to play with those things in poetry. Yeah. <laughs> as horrifying as they end up being. Yeah, but I do, I do think the approach of poetry, rather, you could have written a novel about him. Mm-hmm. You could have even, you know, like Dracula or something, written something from multiple perspectives. 
Yeah. And there is um, Robert Block has a book called American Gothic and it's right. <laughs> about H.H. Holmes. I did want to I did want to ask you about that because I saw in another interview where you were talking about this. I've read a bunch of Robert Block, but I somehow have missed that one. Um, it's interesting. He his killer's name is like Gigi something. So it's okay. like directly playing off of the H.H. But it's I don't know. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a fun, quick read. Yeah, there's a lot of Robert Block is. Um, mm-hmm, yeah, but you know, you could have you could have taken that approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think doing it as a book of poems, like it just opens up a lot of possibilities that I wouldn't have expected. Mm-hmm. Did you find it as you were composing these poems? Was it difficult, or did it kind of flow? Was it freeing in some way? It. <laughs> My publisher always tells me that he like, he emailed to check in with me to see how this was going. And then I just like disappeared for a couple months and he didn't hear anything. Then I Uh came back with this book done. So it was kind of like that. Like I was just like, I don't think I talked to anybody for like a month because I was like in this H.H. Holmes brain and I was reading like his memoir and all the things Mm -hmm. that he wrote while he was in prison. So it was definitely one of those things that you just kind of forget about life (laughs) right you start writing it and I just had so much research too that I did try to keep myself organized like okay this is what happened during childhood this is what he did during his college years and stuff like that just because there was so much to sift through right how much because I know again going back to there's so much that's contradictory about him and his story and the legend of him and like you said, he was making up a lot of stuff. The newspapers were making up a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. How important was it to you to try to stick to the facts? Or did you, I, I think you say even in your opening uh, forward, you know, mm-hmm. you, you do acknowledge that you're kind of embellishing a little bit. How, mm-hmm. where, where was, I guess, that line between the creative embellishment, maybe leaning into the iconography and the legend of him versus the facts as we can determine them? What, where was that line for you? I I think I tried to make everything based in a little bit of research, at least like pretty okay. much all the characters come from some research. And then I just kind of embellish their lives and their point of views. But a lot of it, especially like with Peitzel and the death of his children, how Holmes mm-hmm. killed them, that was based on a lot of research of at least what we think happened. Right. Um, and then it was really hard because almost every research book I read had something a little different. Like right. everyone kind of had a different idea or facts. And it was hard to determine what was real. So it's very heavily research-based, but definitely used a lot of my superfluous poetry mm-hmm. <laughs> creative skills too to make it kind of my own version as well. Yeah. And I, I think, again, writing it as poetry, you're able to kind of get past our expectation for We're not reading this thinking yeah. we're reading a true crime you right. know, book. It, it, it allows it to let some of that air into it exactly yeah just a couple more questions i don't want to keep you too no good there's an earlier poem we don't have to read it but i want to ask you about it because it it, it seems to refer to a story like i'm I'm sure i've not done nearly the research on hh homes that you have but i've done some reading um but you had an early poem called push that seems Ah. to be about (laughs) him maybe as a child murdering somebody is this based on a true story because i've never heard this This was something I found in maybe like one of the textbooks that I was looking through. I can't remember which one, but there was a very small story that he had a friend during his boyhood and they went into an abandoned house 
And the story is mostly that the boy slipped on a rotting board and fell and died. Mm. So that could be the true account. But obviously, as a horror writer, I was like, oh, I could see H.H. Right. Twins just pushing his friend down the staircase sure. or down something like that. So there is a little bit of a story there. But again, nothing that's really proven. That's it. It reminds me of if anyone listeners of the podcast remember, I, I did a episode about Stephen King. I guess about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. And I talked about the incident early in his life where he supposedly watched his friend get hit by a train. Oh, yeah. Um, and a lot of people point to it like, that's why Stephen King is the way he is. And he always claims, like, I don't remember it. Like, it's just a story my mom told me, you know. Oh. But I, it almost makes me think of that, like, particularly with the idea, like, did he observe something? And did that affect him in some way? Or mm. obviously the big question is, did he do it? Did he push this person and, right and I, yeah it does seem like you at least from uh for creative purposes <laughs> uh take the perspective that he was responsible for this kid's death um, yeah again, so- it's, amb- it's ambiguous I, I like the amb- ambiguity that you play with there yeah i mean that's the name of the game with Holmes is ambiguity so it, right. <laughs> it, it's fun with writing when you find something like that that can, you can take some details and some research from but there's enough room for you to really make it and warp it into your own twisted creation mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I, I have to say like I like I told you I used to dabble with poetry yeah. uh when I was in college and I and I always I enjoyed it, but I always struggled with it. It was it was hard to get my brain into that mode. But I think yeah. this is the first book of poetry I've read in a long time. Oh. And I think you've inspired me. I'm going to maybe like try my hand at it. <laughs> Yay! I love hearing that. That's like one of the best compliments. Mm-hmm. That one and then people who are like, I hate poetry, but I liked your book. I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's probably more poetry you'll like out there then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know the fact that it's narrative poetry, for, I have such a narrative brain. Mm-hmm. you know definitely helped me yeah. but I love I, ju- I just love the the looseness and I guess I would say like the looseness but also the precision of the language you know yeah. your ability to switch different perspectives give us little vignettes without having to stitch together like you know we're getting glimpses of the narrative without getting like sort of a to b kind of plot you know? yeah is this your only poetry book or do you have I have two others so this is my this is my stoker winner one and then I want to I want to ask you about that (laughs) yeah then my other one my first one is love for slaughter it is horror mance and then my most recent one from 2020 ish was cradle land of parasites and it's about the bubonic plague oh okay well i'm definitely gonna have to read that (laughs) (laughs) what is it like publishing poetry and what what is the response from the horror community. I mean, obviously this did win the Stoker, mm-hmm. but what what is, uh, I guess, what is like the poetry market like in comparison to the fiction market? It's definitely a lot smaller of mm-hmm. a niche than, the, than writing short stories. I think you have to really love writing poetry if you're going to commit to doing like a collection and putting it out right. there because even something that sells well, it's just not going to sell as well as um, stories and books and things. Sure. So yeah. Yeah, you have to really love it, but I, I feel like it's very rewarding if it's something you love to do. So it's it's a niche market, but I think I, I have seen it pick up more and more over the years. Like we have the HWA Poetry Showcase, which is really cool. So that's like right. a nice emphasis and highlight on poetry. Yeah, I, I was, um, when I was at StokerCon, I was impressed by how many people were talking about the poetry and, you know, it, di- it didn't seem like an afterthought. 
you know. That's good um, to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like you said, it definitely seems like more of a niche or a niche, but there's like gen that seemed like there's real genuine interest in it. And particularly within the genre context, I thought that was interesting. What was yeah. it like to win the Stoker? Oh, <laughs> obviously that's every horror writer's dream. <laughs> <laughs> it was really cool because I was still like fairly new to the community. So like uh-huh. when you're new like that, you're like, oh, I don't have a chance, but it's cool to be nominated. So that was yeah. neat. And it was also the last Stoker Con that was in person before the pandemic. So that made that's it right. like yeah. kind of even more special to reminisce about that I got to accept it in person and talk to people in person after not the not seeing anybody for three years. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's very cool. It's back on my shelves somewhere. So it's very heavy. You could definitely like kill somebody with it. So yeah. <laughs> did you find winning the sucker? Did that really have like a tangible effect on your standing in the horror community or were you it- already kind of there? like getting there because I was starting to write more and more but Uh I think it it just helps people like see your name look up your work like it's definitely helpful I don't think it's gonna hurt at all (laughs) but I think it did just help maybe like some editors reach out to me and be like oh okay like I want to check out that work and so that is it's really cool it's really cool to have that happen and you said StokerCon next year is going to be in Pittsburgh Yes, I am one of the co-chairs, so I can answer any questions (laughs) as we get things rolling. (laughs) Yeah, I remember they, they, I remember they, when I was there, they said you were named you as one of the co-chairs. What is that like? Is that a lot of work? Well, so far it's just been like learning all the things that we need to do. Luckily I'm one of three co-chairs. So that's really helpful that there's three of us to do everything that we need to do. We're really excited. The hotel in Pittsburgh's really excited. Like they love horror. So (laughs) that's really fun. I mean, it's George Romero city. So you would. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like there's just so much that I think we're going to be able to play around with and have a great time yeah i'm gonna try and make it um obviously it was easy it was easy for me to make it to the one in denver because i'm in albuquerque it's that's just a like a six hour drive for me but i think i'm gonna try and make it to pitch do it (laughs) (laughs) um and and i'm actually gonna have gwendolyn keist on the show uh coming up here too and she's she's also in pittsburgh right? yes yeah she's a good friend of mine i just saw her last week for our chapter meeting <laughs> cool. yeah. yeah i'm excited to have both of you guys on awesome and, and again thank you so much for coming on and talking about this i do uh i'll let you go here in a second but i do want to ask uh what do you have coming up specifically i do want to ask you about chromophobia yeah that's pretty much what i have coming out so <laughs> um chromophobia releases august 1st it is my second time editing an anthology it is 25 stories by women in horror and it's all horror stories inspired by colors and we got a nice little carcass review and publishers weekly review so definitely keep an eye out for that one can you name any of the authors in there is there anyone we would recognize um sure like my brain just blanks on that question (laughs) but let's see there is red lego sonora taylor um kp kolsky evie knight um oh, nice. yeah yeah they're all wow, that's, that's a great lineup just yeah. right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh what about like anything longer are you are you uh planning on uh, a novel at any point i have some a novel done but i i'm very like i don't know if i like it enough to keep sending mm. it but i am working on a novella that should be done by the end of this month that i can hopefully get submitted but um great 
Yeah, I love the novella length. That's just such a fun yeah. Right in. Yeah, that that is. I I feel like for horror stories, novellas are almost the perfect length. Yeah. And I've been reading a lot more of them lately, and like I just recently read um uh, Laurel Hightower's Below. Oh yeah, I, good. I love that. I'm a big. I mean, we did. I think it was like my second or third episode of the podcast. I did the Mothman. So oh, perfect. Uh, yeah, that a, book a Mothman novella. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I liked Below a lot too. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that whenever that comes out. So, yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, thanks again so much for coming on and Thank talking. You. About this. Thank you. And uh, yeah, the book is "The Devil's Dreamland: Poetry Inspired by H.H. Holmes." I, I believe you can find it pretty much anywhere online, right? Yep. Yeah. And then, uh, if you, if it's not out of print yet, I do strongly recommend if you haven't read it yet, you guys really should read "To Be Devoured." That's that was just an excellent novella. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And uh, until next time, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.